0: Tonight I want to answer one question with the lesson that is going to be delivered, and it's this question, why should I keep the faith? Um, That that question, well, Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, verses 6 through 8, he he was saying, you know, the time of my departure is at hand. I've fought a good fight, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, he said, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge will give unto me in that day and not to me only, but unto all them who love his appearing. So Paul said, I kept the faith. And my question is, why? Why would you do that? Because I know what Jesus said about being a disciple of, of his. He said in Matthew chapter 10, it'll come between you and your family. Uh, father and mother will will be divided from their children because of it. And son and daughter will be divided against their parents because of the faith. Why, why would you let something come between your own flesh and blood? He, it, Paul told us in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12 that all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So, you know, you know, up front, this is not going to be easy and, and if you do it right, you're going to make enemies because of it. And so my question is, why would you want to do that? And really, this lesson is for everyone here tonight. It's not just for people who have not obeyed the gospel. It's for those of us who have. And the question is either this. I, I want to give you tonight three reasons, or the answer is this. I want to give you three reasons why you ought to, number one, keep the faith and why you ought to become a child of God. If you're not yet a Christian, I want to give you three good reasons why you need to do that and really need to act on that this evening before you go home. And if you already are a Christian, I want to give you three good reasons why you need to be faithful as a Christian and not let distance come between you and God and separate you from Him. Because, um, well... The Bible gives us these three reasons, and really, I I don't have anything to improve upon them. And and I'll say up front, if these things don't move you, and if they're not motive for you to obey, I I don't have anything else, you know, in my up my sleeve or in my pocket that I can pull out and and maybe entice you to give your life to Jesus. These that I know of, no greater motives then these three biblical motives that God has given us. So let's look at that question tonight. Why should I keep the faith when I know up front it'll bring hardship to my life? It will create enemies, it will bring persecution. Well, the first reason is this because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. He died why should you become a Christian? Why should you obey the gospel? Why should you live faithfully as a Christian? Because Jesus died for you. Do you understand what that means? Have you, have you thought about it? I mean, it, it, it's so long ago that we sometimes forget about this is real. It's not just made up. It's real. Jesus, a man, died because of you. Do, do you understand how much weight that must Put on our shoulders. Have you felt that weight? A number of years ago, there was a a man in in Glasgow where I I used to preach, and, and he got up one day and got in his car and went to work. And what he didn't realize is that his little boy had climbed out of the car, out of the house, and he didn't know it, and he was sitting behind the back wheel of his car. And that man backed up over his own son. And took his life. I don't even know. I don't even know how you deal with that. I don't know how you even cope after something like that because you're responsible for the death of an innocent one, one you loved. It's beyond me. I don't know how I'd deal with that. But if you can understand the weight of guilt, the weight of responsibility in, in that father must feel, then Put it on yourself, because you're right there with him. You, because of you, Jesus died on the cross. And had it been everybody else perfect, and you're the only sinful person in the world, he still would have gone through it. He was a lamb slain from the foundation of the world, Revelation 13 and verse 8. And when we talk about what it took, you know, what took place, oh, it begins before it ever gets to the cross. There's the whole idea of the humiliation that took place. In Philippians 2, uh, in verse 5 and following, he talks about how the Jesus humbled himself. He, he didn't think it was robbery or a thing to be grasped at, to be equal with God. He was able to let go of that and become a man and take on flesh and, and become a servant and to even die. But notice what it says in verse 8. And die even the death of the cross. And this is not an easy death. The Romans knew what they were doing when they put people to death. And, and they intended to strike fear in the hearts of those who witnessed what took place. And bring about compliance. Because they sure didn't want that to happen to them. Jesus went through that because of you. But here's part of it. Think of the humiliation of the cross. Jesus never had an an evil, wicked thought. He, he never sinned in his thought, in his speech, or in his action. He's perfect. And as he was carrying that cross, that instrument of death, reserved for those guilty of crimes sufficient for capital punishment, as he carries that instrument of death, having been beaten, as he carries it through the streets, no doubt he heard People saying, uh, he says he can tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. Crazy. He he blasphemes God. and And all the things that must have been said, the accusations that were false, that would cause them to rise up as one and say, crucify him. Those things were within earshot. Have you ever heard anybody lie about you? If you have, have have you ever been in the presence? Are you just going to take it and not defend yourself if you know someone's not telling the truth? Most of us feel the need to fix that. Jesus heard it, and he was led as a sheep to the slaughter. He opened not his mouth because he had a job to do. He was to die for you. A number of years ago when I was uh, in high school... A girl was at our bus stop, and she had been smoking pot and was not in shape to go to school. And when she came to step up on the bus, she just fell backwards and cracked her head really hard. And, and um, well, she, they had to call the ambulance, and, and police came, and they rushed her off in the ambulance. And, and keep in mind, I, I lived in a town of about 3,000 people, maybe, and um, one main street through town, my dad was the preacher there and, and had been for years. And, and so everybody knew everybody. and And so after she was taken off and the ambulance was gone, there were still two police cars in front of the bus on the main street. And the policeman wanted to ask and interview those of us who were there, what happened? And so I was called off the bus to tell the police, you know, what I had seen. But when I was called off the bus to tell the police what I had seen, I saw people driving by, just creeping by going, that's that Higginbotham boy. He did something. His dad's a preacher. They hauled him off the bus to, to, what did he do? You know, I could, I wanted to yell out and say, I haven't done anything. I'm just trying to be helpful here. But it was humiliating to me. At that time. Well, if you can understand that, what do you think Jesus must have been? He was innocent, pure, had never done anything wrong. And he hears all these people surmising all these scenarios that were outright lies and misrepresentations about him and not a one of them were true. And he kept quiet because he had a job to do. He had to die for us. The the um you, you get to the agony of the cross and and really the agony of the cross doesn't even begin at the cross you go back to the garden of Gethsemane and and you know Luke records for us that his sweat became as great drops of blood and and that may be metaphorical or you know simile. But it, it may also be, you know, there, there's a condition called hematidrosis that, uh, your capillaries can, can burst and blood can enter into the sweat glands and you can literally perspire blood. I don't know if that's what's being said here. I'm not going to venture a guess. Maybe, maybe not. But whatever's taking place, he's under a tremendous amount of stress. And I know we look at that picture in the Garden of Gethsemane that's a famous picture that was painted. And and Jesus has his elbows on this rock and he's very serenely looking up to heaven, praying in the garden, telling his disciples a little ways off to to watch and to pray with him. The Hebrew writer said it was with vehement cries that Jesus lifted up his voice to heaven. There wasn't anything serene about it. It was tragic. It was tragic. And it was overwhelming. And Jesus even said, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to do this, but if it's what I have to do, I'll I'll go ahead and I'll do it. He was scourged. Um, If you've seen The Passion of the Christ, the movie... Uh, many people came away saying, "Oh, that that scourging thing was just over the top." You know, I like the movie, but the, it was just over the top. There's no, no, it wasn't over the top. Josephus, a Jewish historian from the first century who witnessed some of the scourgings done by the Romans, said that many of them didn't even survive that. Uh, they, they would be whipped and, and the, the bone and, and the glass that was in the the uh, end of those or stones in the end of the whips would literally, as Josephus said, rip chunks of flesh from your body. Jesus was beaten and he wasn't beaten just by the Jews. He was beaten by The Romans, the Jews had a law that said you could only beat them 40 times and they would stop at 39 just to make sure they didn't miscount and go over. The Romans had no such standard to to hold themselves to. I don't know how many times Jesus was beaten, but it it was a lot. It was a mess. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 6 that Jesus... Visage was marred more than any man, or or fifty two in verse fourteen. And I've often wondered in in time past. I wondered about what, what what does that mean? His visage visage means appearance. Why would Jesus' appearance be marred more than any man? Well, the answer might be from that parallel passage. Or you have Isaiah chapter fifty and verse six, and then Isaiah fifty two and verse fourteen put them together, it says that he gave his beard to those who plucked out or his face to those who plucked out his beard. You know, if you had a beard and I came up and I grabbed a hold and just pulled the hair, pulled the beard out of your face, do you think it would just take hair or do you think it would make him a mess? Um, That's what happened to Jesus. He must have looked horrible as they hung him on the cross. And then there's the whole notion of nailing your hands and your feet to these wooden planks. A number of years ago in Youngstown, Ohio, when I was in high school, there was a man who was closing his gas station and right at closing time, a, a criminal came in and, with a gun and, and demanded all the money and he pled for his life because he had a family. And, and so the robber took the man's hand and and put it in a a vice grip on the, the workbench and tightened it up to where it broke the bones in his hand. And then he took his other hand and stretched it over to the other side of the workbench and told him to lay it down. He took a hammer and a nail and he hammered his hand to the workbench. And there he was until his wife said, he ought to be home by now and went and checked on him. When that hit the news, there were people that were outraged at what had taken place. They were looking for this guy. We have to find this guy because of this horrible, heinous act. Well, and they should have. But what often bothers me is that when we hear that story about that man in Youngstown, and even as I said it, I I saw some of your faces kind of, you know, wince up, and that's really gross. Oh, man, that's awful. And it is. But tell me what they did to him that they didn't do to Jesus, or worse. Why is it that we can read about the cross of Christ and the sacrifice of Jesus, and we never bat an eye? We can read the text and not get emotional. Is it because it happened so long ago? We just like it's not real to us. It's real. Jesus, a a, a God in the flesh, having the feelings and emotions of man went to the cross and experienced this. And again, he did it for you. Why should you be a Christian? Why should you live faithfully as a Christian? Because of what Jesus did for you. He died on the cross. A number of years ago, well, during World War II in the concentration camp Auschwitz, there there was a policy that the commandant had that if anyone escaped from one of those um, barracks that he would take ten men at random and just pull them out and kill them. That decreased the chances of people escaping or at least being successful, you know, other people would tell on them because it it risked their lives. Well, in February of 1941, there was a man, Francis Kajobniczik, who was uh, brought to Auschwitz and he was a Polish soldier and sure enough, a man from his barrack escaped So the commandant had all those men come out, and they lined them up, and he just started calling off ten names at random, and his name was called to die. And he fell on his knees and he begged to live. Don't do this. I have a wife. I have children. Don't please. Don't do this. That fell on deaf deaf ears to this hardened criminal, and for reason, and then. There was another man, his name was Maximilian Kolb. He stepped forward that day and said to the commandant, Can I take his place? I I have no family, I have no wife, no children. He was a Franciscan priest. He said, Can I take his place? And for reasons we'll never know, the commandant said, Okay, you can do that. And they were marched off to the basement of a building and there they were stripped of their clothing and given no food. And And 10 or 11 days later, uh, the job and the chick was the last man living. And he was taking too long to die, so they had uh, poison injected directly into his heart and, and killed him. In the early 1990s, they interviewed um, Maximilian Kolb, or Maximilian Kolb, who so I was meaning... They interviewed him and, uh, or excuse me, they interviewed good job and the chick. And he took them out back and he had this little garden in his backyard and, and a tombstone in his garden. And it said to Maximilian Kolb, the man who died in my place. And he, with tears, told that story. And it was well kept because this is a man who died for him. If you can understand the story of Maximilian Kolb and Francis Kajabnichik, you can understand the gospel of Christ. You see, sometimes a story helps to tell the story. And that's precisely what happened. Our name was called. And we were due death, the penalty of death. But because of reasons we all know well and good. For God so loved the world, John 3.16. Jesus said, let me stand in his place. And he did. And so we we live because of what Jesus did on our behalf. Why should you surrender your life? Why should you keep the faith? Why should you obey the gospel? Why should you be faithful as a Christian? Because of what Jesus did for you. He died for you. But let me give you a second reason. Because of what he's doing for you. He's preparing a place for you in heaven. Uh, you know, there's that passage in John that's often read at funeral times. Let not your heart be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. Were it not so I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Some day we're going to follow our Lord to that heavenly realm. And I tell you, I, I want to go there. And, and I know you do too. That's that's one of the reasons you're here tonight. And, and John attempts to describe for us heaven in... Passages like Revelation twenty-one and and others, and and it, it doesn't do it justice, uh, uh, you know, from the standpoint of does it fully exhaust the beauty of heaven when you when you read about the street of gold and the pearly gate and walls of jasper and and all that? What John is doing is he's taking things that we value in this life and trying to paint a picture. How would you describe an airplane to Native Americans living 250 years ago? You would take what they know and try to do something with that, a bird. Well, well, John is taking what we know and trying to describe this heavenly spiritual realm, and he does so in terms that make me realize this is a pretty neat place. This is a place that I don't want to miss out on. It's a place of reward that... um, we can have because of serving God. Matthew chapter 5 verses 11 and 12 talk about the reward that is there. But I'll tell you, more than the reward of heaven, you know what makes me want to go to heaven more than anything? It's because of the reunion that will be heaven. David lost his son in Second Samuel. Uh, Because of his sin, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23, that, that child was taken from him. And before he died, David was down on the ground begging, pleading, crying, praying to God to spare that child. When word gets to him that that child is dead and they didn't want to tell him because they thought he would just lose it. And they come to him and finally say, well, we gotta tell him. And so they tell him, your your son is dead. And David gets up and he washes himself and he puts his clothes on and he goes to worship. And they said, whoa, explain yourself. What, what, we thought you would just like lose it. And we were afraid to tell you. And while he was alive, you were a mess. And now that he's dead, you're okay. What, what's going on with you? And you remember what David said. I can't bring him back, but I can go to where he is. Have you lived long enough to lose someone you love? Don't you look forward to heaven? Don't you want that reunion where you can be together again? Where there are no more goodbyes and and we're reunited, not only with the people that we know in this life, but the saints of all the ages. We'll be together. When I I have shared this with you before, but I had a sister that died when she was nine years old. I was younger than her. And when I I used to go home, I would go home and, and snoop. Uh, because my parents lived in that house for 51 years and, and, uh, when I'd go home and visit, it was like it was still my house, you know, and so I'd go in the cedar closet and say, what have they been doing in my closet, you know, and looking around and checking things out and, and there were, there was a box one time up in the corner and I pulled this box down that had been visited because of the torn corners on it and you opened it up and my sister's shoes are in that box. And the mud from the mud puddle that she stomped in the last time she wore them is still on those shoes. As a child, I don't and I didn't comprehend the depth of the loss that my parents would have experienced. But as an adult, I understand it better. can't imagine having to lose a nine-year-old child. But that's what my mom and dad went through. And from the looks of things, they probably visited that box several times in the past 50 years. Heaven's going to be a place of reunion. No more goodbyes, no more tearful separations. It'll be a place where people can be together. Why should you be faithful to God? Why should you obey the gospel or be faithful as a Christian? Because of heaven. The reunion that God has planned for us. And then let me give you a third reason. Because of what Jesus has done, he died. Because of what he's doing, he's preparing a place for us in heaven. And here's a third, because of what he'll do to you if you don't obey. There is a place called hell. I know we don't like to talk about hell very often, and and it, I think it's been all but diminished and and minimized and trivialized and and made fun of in our culture today. Um, the devil is pictured as this cute little cartoon character that has a little tail with a point at the end and carries a little cute pitchfork and you, you know just a little lovable fella, and and that's not what the Bible teaches about the devil. And what we need to understand, and even those that talk about, you know, there was a girl one time who, in the youth group, she wasn't a Christian, and she had a car wreck, and rode her car several times, and she came to me the next day, and she said, uh, telling me about it, and I said to this girl, called her name, and I said, what what would have happened if you had not made it? Because she wasn't a Christian, she knew And she said, well, I guess I would have gone to hell. But you know what? That's where most of my friends are going to be anyway, so it doesn't really matter. She doesn't understand hell. She didn't understand hell. Hell's not a place where the the good old boys are going to party. The devil isn't like the band leader for hell. He, too, is under the curse of rebellion and sin. The Bible, well, about 150, 170 years ago, Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon. It was during the Great Awakening. He preached a sermon entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he described hell. And have you heard somebody say, I don't believe in a God that would dangle you over the fires of hell, you know, and threaten you that way and so forth. I don't believe in a God like that. Well, neither do I. But Edwards said something like that, but not it wasn't that. Here's what Edwards said in a sermon. He said, because of our sin, we do indeed dangle over the, over the eternal fires of hell by the thin thread of our life. But here's what he said. And were it not for the good providence of God that sustains that life and holds that thread, we would have long since taken that plunge. But because of God's goodness, he sustains it. But listen, he won't forever. You're not going to live forever. Something will happen, and eventually that thin thread of life will break. What'll happen to you then? There is a place called hell. It's not just a byword. It's not a a, a, a comic routine. We, we talked about a commercial not long ago that this guy gets hit by a Mack truck and he wakes up in this room and there's a cookie about this big, a chocolate chip cookie. And he was like, yes. And and boy, he just starts eating this cookie. He really likes it. And then he goes over to the refrigerator and it's filled with milk cartons. And he starts pulling these milk cartons out. And the first one was empty. So he throws it away. Second one, empty. Third one, empty. Fourth one, empty. And then he's, it, he said, well, Wait a second, where am I? As if hell is just going to be like not having milk with your cookies. That totally undermines the biblical doctrine of hell. It's not a joke. It's not milk without your cookies. It's an eternal separation from God that is described by Bible writers in terms of what probably is the worst kind of death you can imagine, being burned to death. It's a it's a place where God's wrath is poured out on man. I know what men can do. I, I I like to read history, and I've seen what some of those doctors did in those concentration camps. Just the experiments that were done to people. Um, I'm afraid of what men can do to me. But if you're afraid of what men can do to you, then. You ought to be afraid of what an eternal, all-powerful God who's angry can do to you. Oh, I don't believe that God would ever get angry. Really? Listen to what he said in Hebrews chapter 10. He talked about those who sin under the law of Moses, how that they would pay a price. But he said, of how much sorer punishment do you suppose those worthy who have trodden underfoot the sacrifice of the Son of God, who have counted His blood as a common thing, and who have insulted the Spirit of His grace? God is basically saying, are you kidding me? You think that you can just act like the death of my Son is no big deal? You think you can just like wipe your feet on it? And I'm going to be okay with that? You think you can insult the spirit of my grace and get away with it? He says further in the chapter, you have nothing but a fearful expectation of judgment. You see, God is merciful and He's and he has pity on his children. But that same God... If you die outside of Jesus, you will be a sinner, not in the hands of a merciful God, but in the hands of an angry God, full of vengeance, because you knew what his son did and you didn't care. The Bible describes hell as a place of fire, as a place where there's no relief. You don't get to call time out in hell to catch your breath, to rest, to get a break, and then jump back in. It, it's it's no relief, day or night, forever and ever. I, you know, the thought of hell should make you disturbed. And if you know of someone who died outside of Christ... It ought to it oughta stir you. I was taking a youth group to Louisville, Kentucky. I was speaking on a, at a youth rally on one occasion. And, and we had just left the, the city. And there was one more stoplight, traffic light to go through. And uh, one of the kids in the back of the van said this. He's a teenager. He said, have any of you ever seen a dead person before? I don't know why he said that. That is strange, you know, teenagers. You know, I don't know what it was. But he said, have you ever seen, and he said, I don't mean like at a funeral home, I mean like just out somewhere. And no one had for about another 15 seconds, literally. Because we went through that light and we went to the crest of a hill and there was a wreck right in front of us. And an 18-year-old girl who was going to McDonald's to work trying to earn money to pay for her college, she hit a guy head on and came through the windshield and landed right in front of our van. We had to go around her body. Uh, You talk about a sober group of young people. Do you think that girl woke up that morning and said goodbye to her parents in a special way? Because, well, she's only 18. Nothing like that would happen. Well, of course not. The young die too. And it's not just those who have lived a long, full life. You want to know why you ought to be a Christian? Because there's a place called hell. And if we don't surrender our lives to Jesus and if we ignore what God let him do for our behalf or on our behalf and act like it's no big deal, we are sinners awaiting the vengeance of an angry God. Beyond that, I don't have anything else to offer you. I've given you three reasons tonight why you ought to be a faithful Christian. I've given you three reasons tonight why you ought to be a Christian in the first place. Because of what Jesus did for you, he died on the cross. Because of what he's doing for you, he's preparing a place for you to dwell eternally in heaven. And because of what he'll do to you if you don't respond. There is a place called hell. And some of the things, you know, I, I don't want you to make a decision based on emotion or getting worked up or anything like that. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to use your intellect. Come, let us reason together, Isaiah 1 and verse 18. Though your sins be as scarlet, they can be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they can be white like wool. I want you to think. What's at stake here? Your eternal destiny. Make a decision that gives you peace of mind, assurance of a reunion, and gives your family and those who love you peace of mind. You need to be a Christian. And if you're not, why don't you take care of that tonight? I'll tell you what the Lord said. Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. If you haven't done that, do that tonight. And if you're a child of God already but unfaithful and you, you've let distance come between you and your God, you've forgotten maybe or at least just kind of taken his sacrifice for granted and, and you need to get back faithful in service to him. We'll pray with you to that end, if you'll come as we stand together and sing.